In April of 2011, Calroy Zervos, middle school drama teacher, entered my closet office and announced, I see that you're on Twitter. Here, let me give you 10 names and a few hashtags to follow. My self-driven professional development then went into hyperdrive. Scott McLeod was one of those names. Later, when visiting the Hack Education event in Atlanta the night before the ISTE conference, I knew a third of the room via Twitter had read their blogs and could predict their talking points during circle talks. A couple of weeks ago, I reached out to Scott, now Dr. McLeod, and he agreed to meet up for a podcast interview. Dr. McLeod is author of three books, a recipient of numerous honors and awards, and remains in high demand for trainings, consulting, and presentations. And yet, in his blog, Dangerously Irrelevant, he continues to question and explore. Currently, our political crisis has forced a crisis of school leadership. COVID-19 has been a catalyst for months of crisis teaching, and similar to the boom ed tech gears of 10 to 15 years ago, we're all adjusting our innovator's compass, leaning into the possibilities within the constraints of online hybrid learning. This conversation is dangerously relevant as it explores Scott's last months of blogging and interviewing educators from around the world. You may not find the answers to the right teaching methods through pandemic learning, but you could walk away a little more at ease at walking the unknown pathway to learning. So here is Dr. Scott McLeod of Dangerously Irrelevant. Thank you, Chris, for having me on your uh, podcast. I appreciate it. And it's nice to see you again. It's been a while. Um, So I actually started as an eighth grade uh, social studies teacher in uh, North Carolina. And somehow, uh, right before that, had also had the chance to get my master's in school leadership and realized that I really love my law class that you're required to take. And so when my wife and I went back for our terminal degrees, I decided to do a JD PhD program. We ended up in Iowa um, and have been a professor of school leadership, preparing principals and superintendents ever since, except for a four year break where I actually was uh, an administrator in a regional service agency in Iowa, serving about 40 school districts over a geographic area about the size of New Jersey. Um, So I actually took a pause in my higher ed career um, to do that administrative work and then came back. But mostly I've just been thinking about leadership and systems. And, you know, I have this wonderful opportunity to work with school leaders and classroom educators and coaches and school systems all around the world um, and kind of see what's happening trying to, you know, just figure out what does it mean to be a future-ready school system and prepare a future-ready graduate. Cool. Well, let's be, let's jump into some of your mo- most recent blog posts that I think will provide uh, great spaces for unpacking. Uh, in your post, Designing for High Engagement this fall, you communicate what I've heard a student write, that online school is just like regular school without all the fun parts. Kids love school because they get to hang out with their other kids, they play sports, they do projects where they work toward cooperative goals with other students. School is incredibly social. When you think about face-to-face, blended, hybrid, high-flex, or fully online learning, how do you imagine teachers bringing all the fun back into the online space? It's a great question, right? Because the first thing we have to confront is our uh, inequity around access. So, you know, it's one thing if every kid has a computer and some stable, robust, you know, internet bandwidth at home, because then we can do some interesting things in terms of whole class work, independent work, small group work, um, connected and collaborative learning, you know, across distances. Uh, But if we haven't solved the equity issue first, um, then we know some kids are going to be left out. Um, And so I think you're right, Chris, school is an intensely social space. Um, And of course, our children are trying to figure out their place in the world in relation to their peers. Um, And a lot of that just gets cut away. Um, So, you know, I look at, you know, the ways that my children use technology um, across distance, you know, through social media. And I think there's probably a lot of clues there. It's a lot of student interest driven, where you and I might be playing a video game together, for example, that we both care about. And we're on Discord. Um, And we're talking side by side as we play and we're laughing and joking and teasing each other, right? And all the good things that are happening there. Um, We are sharing each other goofy pictures on Snapchat. (laughs) Um, You know, we're playing around with Instagram, you know, I mean, I think in TikTok, I mean, there's just, you can see there's a level of fun 
and, and interaction in kids' social spaces and social uses of technology. And I wonder what lessons we can learn from that as we think about classroom uses of technology. And you and I could probably talk about that for a few minutes. That, no, I'm glad you mentioned the dis Discord because that was going to be my follow-up question is that um, we as adults may not have access to a lot of the James Paul G experience of, you know, becoming a grandfather and then getting into video games and, you know, in youth culture and not all youth will have access to this or have interest in this, but many of the, the game, a lot of the gaming that is going on is so hyper social that those students actually have a great advantage. And that's what I was also thinking is like, how do we kind of pull a lot of that gaming or, or students who are you know, into influencing or tech social media teams, uh, students who are already into spaces like Animal Crossing, or maybe they have some experience with media arts where they're already creating in these spaces. How do we pull from that as adults, but also to spread that, around, that kind of knowledge around to other kids as well? Yeah, and you can't teach what you don't know. So, uh, you know, if you're not an active uh, inhabitant of these spaces, right, a lot of the things that we're talking about, many educators haven't even heard of, more or less are familiar with. You know, what does it mean to uh, incorporate Animal Crossing or Discord or Snapchat or TikTok into your teaching modality, right? Um, like that would be some creative conversations and some really challenging conversations for a lot of educators because they're not on those platforms. They don't really understand what that even means and what the power is and how to use them well in educational formats. So, you know, on the one hand, there's the creepy treehouse effect, right? Which is this idea that kids don't want us in their spaces, <laughs> they don't want us co-opting their spaces. Um, and on the other hand, it feels like if we could learn some lessons from gaming and gamification, if we could learn some lessons from how kids use social media to stay connected, if we could learn some lessons around sort of um, student-driven learning um, and persistence toward a goal that they set, if we thought about learning as collaborative, like we see with many of these spaces where the kids teach each other, if we think about learning as a place where you get very rapid feedback on how you're doing, right? Like in the gaming space and so on. Maybe those are some ideas we can pull into our hybrid or online teaching as well as our face-to-face. -face. I have been waiting and I feel like now we're months into this and I keep, you know, kind of scouring the web and looking at library spaces, looking at museum spaces, looking at school librarian or tech uh, facilitators. And I'm wondering where do you see that being pushed the most within schools or within different learning environments? Because I'm, I'm not seeing a whole lot of it. I mean, I'm seeing some innovative things done with book checkouts and libraries, uh, you know, encouraging kind of Zoom read-alouds and things like that. Um, but what I'm not seeing is kind of this, this drive forward of someone who's, you know, really showing how that we can incorporate a lot of these tools in, into these spaces. I'm about to go into a library media space Okay. And I'm super excited about, you know, I'm not excited about teaching during COVID or anything like that. This is not optimal, but I am excited about stretching what we can do and, and what I can offer to other teachers and students in, in that space. Where do you see that happening? Like what position needs to happen within a school that, that we can push those elements a little harder? Again, going back to the theme of you can't teach what you don't know. You know, I think it starts with a collective conversation about what are our uh, not just responsibilities during this time, but also our possibilities during this time. Um, and, you know, in most schools, there's at least a few tech-oriented staff um, who are playing around with uh, technologies in some interesting ways. Um, and depending on what generation they inhabit, they may be more familiar or closer to our youth in terms of some of the tools that they use. And I think that's the place to start, right? Is just trying to inspire some possibilities, some conversations about what's there. I mean, everybody has to travel their own learning journey. And you're not going to take a relatively traditional teacher who doesn't use a lot of technology beyond, say, uh, an LMS like Google Classroom or Schoology to push documents out to kids and all of a sudden think that they're going to integrate, you know, Discord and Animal Crossing into their instruction next week. Um, but we can start to show them what's... Um, um, what some interesting ideas might be, and then collaboratively brainstorm about how we might use some tools in some new directions. Um, again, you know, this mm. all is 
uh, premised on the access um, of kids to get at some of these things. Um, but if access is a relatively small issue, then it opens up some opportunities to have our conversations in some different areas. Mm. I don't know, I'm a big, I'm a, Chris, I guess I'm, what I'm trying to say here is that I'm a big believer that our answers lie within um, and that usually if you get some talented educators together and give them some structured conversation tools and some ideas to bounce, bounce around, then we usually come up with some pretty interesting solutions. Yeah. Um, I'm connecting to you from Colombia, the land of Gabriel Garcia Marquez, the land of Maconda, of magical realism, where Gabo did not have to invent. He reported magical realism is everywhere on the Atlantic coast here. Now in the States, I feel like we're in this new wave of magical realism, the magical thinking that you talk about in, in your post. Uh, Georgia Public Schools are opening this week or have already opened. And like summer camps, I think we're about two weeks away from some pretty more, the realism of mortality. Um, what do you see going on? I mean, I see some, I mean, personally, it just looks like school has just become this political tool and the current campaigns moving that are in motion. Um, how do you see it from the inside the states and what can we do about this? Well, remember that education is always political, right? We've been fighting political battles over what happens in schools and how schools should operate, and who they should serve since the moment they were invented um, because of their social reproduction function, right? Um, and, you know, all these ongoing battles about curriculum and equity and, you know, so the political aspect is nothing new. Uh, I think one of the challenges here in the States is that because education is so hyper-local, is that every single community gets to have its own take on how we should operate schools and, and what learning and teaching should look like. You know, like we don't have a national curriculum like many other countries. Um, we have a relatively weak um, national department of education, unlike some other countries which have stronger ministries of education and so on. And so this hyper-locality then allows us to have a, a diversity of educational systems, which um, is good in some ways because it allows creative ideas to flourish. Um, and it's bad in other ways because it can exacerbate existing inequities um, and cause some really interesting leadership behaviors as I think we're seeing over the summer. Um, I think for me, as somebody who thinks a lot about leadership and systems, I've been absolutely appalled by the lack of leadership that's happening around schools, not just by our policymakers, who, who we would anticipate would be highly political, but by school leaders who are somehow willing to ignore the data that's very evident across the country and in their communities and just sort of, you know, throw the children to the wolves um, because they're not brave enough to take a stand. I feel like we need to go deeper into that. <laughs> um, well, just because, yeah, I see the same kind of thing that in, in the current moment, you know, let's say you're from a Southern state like a Georgia or West Virginia, where things are um, relatively, you know, GOP backing and, and that's okay. We have a two party system. Um, but in the current moment, it's become that everyone's afraid to stick their neck out. They don't want to get their head chopped off. Uh, and, I was thinking the same thing. You know, I, I have a new director who is giving us so much communication, so much transparency, and clearly making it known that this is going to be a co-created thing, that we're going to follow this every week, and things may change drastically from this week to the next. Um, meanwhile, I'm watching schools open, and everyone just sort of pretending like there isn't a pandemic going on. And, that you know, I even saw on your blog you had posted – I'm not sure who put the video out, but it looked very Lincoln Project-y uh, in that, you know, you have to decide or, or this is a battle between Trump and your child. Uh, you know, do, do you protect the, your child or do you, um, you know, follow the kind of the political agenda of the moment? Is this something that's happening everywhere in the States or is this just like a Southern thing that's going on? Yeah, yeah. No, it's happening everywhere. Um, and I think, you know, the challenge is that, you know, of course, you have to bring your community along. Right. So your community, just like everybody else, families, parents, you know, workers, everybody wants kids back in school um, for a variety of different reasons. And so there's this inherent pressure to return. I think the challenge is all the sort of countervailing stuff that's pushing against that 
that many leaders um, have not been doing the communication aspect of the community over the summer to really engage in a realistic diagnosis of what's feasible for the fall. Right. So I blogged recently um, in this post called, you know, Dear School Leaders and Policymakers Didn't Have to Be This Way. Right. That like, you know, we had all summer to see the rising number of cases, to educate ourselves about the science, to read credible news sources and see the viral outbreaks that were happening everywhere that people gathered together, including summer camps and summer schools. Uh, we had all summer to invest in whatever precautions we needed for schools to be safe, which which is around you know, ventilation systems and PPE for educators and whatever rules and policy modifications need to be made and physical barriers and whatever, right? Um, we had all summer to invest in high quality and high engagement remote learning uh, training for our teachers so that we did much better than we did in the spring when it was an emergency. Um, we had all summer to help figure out device access, internet access for our kids and our families at home. Uh, we had all summer to gather allies and fortify ourselves for brave conversations, to engage in realistic ongoing messaging to the community. You know, messages like, hey, I know we're two months out before school's supposed to open, but right now the numbers show us that we're not ready. Hey, I know that we're six weeks out from school being ready to open, but we're just not ready, right? Like these kind of sort of ongoing leadership things. Like we had all summer to be the leaders that we were either elected or appointed to be, and we most places just haven't done the work. It's like, They've been waiting and waiting and waiting and hoping the numbers would get better and making some token investments in some, you know, protective equipment and um, some plans and some training for teachers, but in sort of small doses, right? Instead of recognizing, particularly as the summer went on, that the numbers aren't getting better, they're actually getting worse, and we should be preparing our community for this. And so what we see is we see... Um, just like we saw in the spring, as we see leaders over and over again waiting until the absolute last minute to make the call. Instead of hinting at the call or recognizing they have to make the call and messaging their community over and over and over again during the summer, right? Like it would be a very different message to hear from a leader six to eight times over the course of the summer. The numbers aren't there yet. The numbers aren't there yet. Prepare for online. Nobody wants this. I'm as upset about it as you are, right? That's very different from we're going back face-to-face, -face, we're going back face-to-face, -face, we're going back face-to-face, -face. oh, nope, we're not going back, right? Like that, those are two very different leadership pathways in terms of communication and messaging. And most leaders have done the second one, not the first one. Hmm. Yeah, no, I, I'm, I'm thinking through the school I'm going at where, you know, they went on spring break vacation and then all of a sudden no one could get back into the country. So they're literally running school from all these different points of the globe, a truly like online experience. Right. Right. Um, you know, even now, like I will begin teaching from Bogota, but I'll be teaching potentially to uh, some kids that are in a physical classroom in Khartoum and other kids who are not yet there, you know, so we'll have kind of all modalities at, at play or whatever. You wrote a post, uh, uh, you wrote a, a really, um, I mean, this is, Powerful stuff. And I, I would encourage educators to look up this post and read it aloud to each other. And I think this is uh, similar to like a lot of the posts you're writing, you're, you actually instruct, read this aloud to yourself and see how crazy that sounds. Um, so in this post, welcome back to the 2020 school year, a letter from your local superintendent and school board. Uh, you write about what no administrator will say, like, like you just said, and you kind of lay out seven points. I'm going to go through them and I'm going to kind of uh, pick them apart if you don't mind. One, children will get sick. Two, adults will get sick. Three, people will die. Four, there will be a teacher shortage. Five, ed tech will take advantage of this moment and push in. Uh, six, there's not enough PPE to really run school. Uh, seven, uh, you mentioned pandemic pods. Um, and please don't start that because we need your money to support our, our school system. So these are great points of entry because this covers a lot of the current moment, I think. And in the first one, children will get sick. Um, how, how do you see schools um, that are going back to physical space? And, you know, I have read uh, more recently that you know, the pandemic, uh, the virus is airborne and that there are measures that can be taken. They're just very expensive. There are air filtration systems mm -hmm. that are supposed to kill 99 point something percent of uh, vi viral infections in the air. Um, there are UV lights that I know the Miami Dolphins have installed in their practice facilities. Um, so, I mean, there are methods of opening windows, you know, just, you know, 
getting kids outside as much as possible, increasing air ventilation. Um, what do you see uh, leaders needing to do to kind of address just the part of children getting sick? Well, I'm no epidemiologist, <laughs> right? Um, and I'm definitely not a medical equipment person, but I, but I think, you know, you nailed it here in that, you know, this is a respiratory virus, you know, above and everything else. And so uh, we're seeing a lot of school precautions around wiping down surfaces, which is good because the virus can linger there. But primarily the spread is coming from airborne you know, respiration, talking and singing and yelling and being too close to each other breathing in each other's faces and so on. And so um, I think a couple things about that blog post that you mentioned was, was I'm surprised about how many people on the web have asked me if it's a for real letter. Uh, <laughs> really? really <laughs> no, it's, it's along the lines of uh, what is the other site? I, I just saw you repost something from it. I had not read it. Well, Sweeney, the librarian Sweeney. Yeah, McSweeney's, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, definitely satire. So I've been telling people no, but it might as well be right because it's saying <laughs> the quiet things out loud, as you notice, as you noted. And I think you know the number one thing for leaders um, is that uh, you can't be an effective leader if you don't have the trust of your community, um, and you don't build trust by hiding things from them. And so I don't know how many leaders you know we're seeing that are actually having. These kind of honest, honest conversations, maybe not quite as brutally as I said in my satire post, but definitely around the main things that you said, like, look, like how many sick kids are we willing to bear before we shut down again? How many dead teachers are we willing to bear before we shut down again? Right. Like these are the kinds of things that nobody wants to say, but these are decision triggers that have nothing to do with the community because community spread might still be low, but we might have an outbreak in the school system that we have to think about. And so everybody in the States, at least, is trying to peg their reopening plans around community spread, which is a start. But if you don't also have those decision triggers internally about, so how many is too many before we decide to shut back down again, right? Then what you're doing is, again, you're waiting until the last minute to make a critical decision. You haven't been talking to anybody about it. You're basically winging it. And of course, your community is substituting all of its own decision triggers instead. So you as a school system, like I'm thinking like about a, like a big school district, they might be like, well, you know, 100 kids got sick. That's only like, you know, half of 1% of our kids were good. Meanwhile, teachers and I mean, families out in the community are like, 100 kids got sick. Why didn't you shut down yesterday, <laughs> right? Like, because they have a different threshold for risk and whatever. And if we don't make those kind of conversations explicit and come to some kind of community agreement about what those triggers are, then everybody substitutes their own triggers for yours and wonder why you're not doing what you want them to do. Um, so I think, you know, again, the way we build trust and the way we figure this stuff out is that if we're serving a community, we have dialogues with our community, but those dialogues have to be open and honest and fact-based, not just based on, you know, like you said, magical thinking and, you know, hoping that somebody else will make the decision for me. That's not leadership. Yeah. I saw the, the case of the school in Jerusalem in Israel that, um, you know, they had a lot of community trust and it was very transparent. But then one family sent a kid to school whose uncle had been um, had, you know, they weren't honest about the, the illness in the family. And then a teacher ended up dying because of this. And this is the kind of transparency and trust that I, I believe you're talking about, that it has to go both ways. That, right. um, you know, you, you have to be uh, as, as a leader getting all sides talking, so to speak, like. Teachers have to be on board with this. Students have to also understand it um, because otherwise I believe that you're setting your own leadership up, ship up for, for failure, that the, the fingers will all point to you when things go south. That, yeah. That's kind of the way I see it. Right. Um, and, and, you know, we don't get to choose the hand we're dealt, right? I mean, the bottom line is schools can only do so much about community spread. You know, that responsibility lies on others, not, you know, the schools that weren't the ones that, we're making the policy decisions that, you know, allow the virus to flourish and even spread. Um, but the bottom line is we have to be realistic within that context as we have those conversations with our community. We can't just pretend that things are okay. Like in Iowa, where I used to live, right, like the governor is saying that you can't shut down school unless community spread is at least positivity rate is higher than 15%, right? So, which is a crazy number. 
Um, and so because of political concerns, right? And so now all these school leaders in Iowa are like, well, do I defy the governor, um, right? Do we shut down school anyway? Do we invite lawsuits? You know, do we invite loss of funding for the district? You know, so, I mean, it's not like school leaders aren't in a tough spot because they definitely are, but we don't do that again by not being open and honest about what's happening. Going back to what you said earlier, that, uh, the beauty of our school system and, you know, double-edged sword, of course, is that it has been very localized and a lot of decision-making gets to be put on the local leaders. And such a shame that at the current moment, you know, Betsy DeVos is saying you're going to lose funding if you don't open your schools or threatening this at least. Um, you know, that made me incredibly sad because I sort of like envision this as, you know, like we've seen the growth of the leadership of mayors arise in this time, since we have this kind of void of leadership from above, then the local leader has become super important in this in this COVID-19 time. And I was hoping to see that same kind of thing come out of education, that the you know local superintendent and the local principal mm-hmm. would become these kind of community leaders. But they sort of had their hands chopped off in a way and that they, they can't like stick their, their neck out for that. Now, meanwhile, I'm looking at what my director has been doing, and it is a, it is a weekly letter that has been going on. I mean, he, he blogs mm-hmm. about what's going on in the school anyway every, every week. And so people respond to that and it opens up all kind of conversation. Do you see any other kind of mechanisms that uh, leaders could put in to keep all that conversation going? You know, video chats, mm-hmm. blogging, what, what do you suggest people get into? Yeah, all those things, right? Weekly newsletters, announcements to parents, um, blogging, <laughs> video chats, open forums, town halls, you know, whatever it takes to kind of help your community understand, you know, the challenges of the situation. Um, you know, I think one of the things that we're also not talking about is that teachers are frightened to death. I mean, literally. Um, or at least frightened about death. Um, and so we're going to have this, you know, as schools are forcing educators to go to school, um, even though it's unsafe, a whole a relatively large percentage of them are decided to just resign or retire. So it's not just that we're going to lose teaching spots because teachers get ill and maybe a few die. It's also because teachers aren't willing to work in unsafe conditions and they're making really difficult decisions, right? Like I'm willing to cut half my family's income just to stay alive, right? Those are the kind of decisions they're being asked to make. And so we're going to have this tremendous educator shortage. So we're going to have places that have to shut back down or go remote because they don't have enough teachers, not just because somebody got sick, but because they don't have enough people to fill the classrooms and the teaching spots. And that's going to be an interesting dynamic, too, because, again, we've already been struggling to attract educators to the profession, at least here in the States, because of the policy messages we send about teachers over the last decade or two, right, about being, you know, unworthy and blame, blame for everything and so on. And now all these teachers are like, and you also, like, not only are you going to denigrate me as an educator, right? Like, in the spring, I was a hero. Now I'm a terrible person for not wanting to die, right? And, <laughs> and you know, you know, like, forget it. Like, I'm out of here. So, and, and many of them are not coming back. Yeah, Scott, you, I know you read science fiction. You may remember going back quite a few years now, uh, a, a TV show called Logan's Run. Yeah. I mean, Logan, Logan's Run, you got to be a certain age and you were were kicked out of society and, you know, basically left to die. I I brought up that analogy many times in this COVID-19 teaching time in that you're an older teacher, one in four are over the kind of safe range. So they're already kind of a threat. Um, And you're, you're setting up what I see is kind of a perfect, well, if you're an, if you're an ed tech entrepreneur, it's probably the, it is your perfect storm and that there will be a push to create as much digital online learning as possible. Right. Khan Academy type things, but, um, you know, personalized learning, all these things have been kind of in, in, you know, pushing in and pushing in. And we may see, you know, another kind of dystopia, Um, which brings me to like, let me jump forward to kind of another question I wanted to ask you, because I want to make sure we get to this part, because your particular perspective, I think it would be important on the evolution of ed tech in education. So if we go back to about 2006, uh, I was just getting into a lot of using a lot of these tech tools in the classroom. I even wrote a position in my school that was kind of based on um, extensions of literacy using all of our technologies at hand. At the same moment, you know, Google Docs is coming out. Like all these things are coming out that really like made us rethink like what, what is a cooperative goal? What does collaborative learning look like in the class? And you know, how do we use all this asynchronous and synchronous coordination to, to maximize our time together? Um, what do you see? 
or do you see, uh, like, I see something kind of went wrong around 2008, 2009, and we've been kind of living the decade of the tech hangover in education. And yet right now is kind of a, a particular moment where everyone has real interest in making these tools work. But at the same time, we have this, I would call it the edu corporate machine also, also pushing in. How do you see that evolution happening over the last 10 to 15 years? Yeah, absolutely. I don't know if there was ever a tipping point per se, but you know, I think there's always been these competing visions of what technology means in schools. There's those of us who view technology as a liberating mechanism for young learners and educators to really empower them to do some really interesting learning and teaching work. Um, and then there's the folks who see technology as basically a way of replicating school as it's always been, right? Um, sort of that compliance-oriented, teacher and system-directed, uh, teaching as transmission model, and then you just regurgitate back. Um, and we'll use technology to make that process more efficient. Um, and there's, of course, you know, the subset of people who also view technology as a means of controlling young people. And so, you know, we see some of these, you know, behavioral, behavior mod technologies, <laughs> for example, um, that schools and teachers can use to monitor kids, to um, engage in behavior control and so on, right? And so we have these competing tensions. And for those of us who really see technology as a liberating force, to see that the other side of the continuum has continued to get stronger and stronger in many ways is, can be very disheartening or disappointing or frustrating, right? And I think mm. that's maybe what you're articulating here. Um, you know, it's one thing to talk about uh, a computing device as a liberating machine. It's very different to talk about a computing device as a curriculum delivery and student behavior control machine. Mm. So let's talk about this idea of, uh, you know, one of your books, you talk about moving online, that, that you need to think about, or at least this is the way I had it in my mind before reading that post, was that um, in planning, I'm personally planning for complete digital, like pretending like I will not even be present and just, you know, what will a unit of study look like as a complete digital experience? And then start putting in all of the other uh, points of human contact. Okay, well, then what is my highest priority of how I can interact with that kid? And that would be the one-on-one -on -one or small group, um, you know, how to put those things. And then I've seen some people write about it as kind of space, spaces, schedules, and systems. Um, how do you recommend people kind of approach this, um, this planning that we're, we're going into this fall? That was a big, broad question. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> it's good. I think we have to make a distinction between the first few weeks and then what happens after, because the first few weeks is where we lay the foundation for the rest of the school year. And I think what we have to recognize um, is in almost every school in the world, is that uh, every kid is coming back to school with a lot of uncertainty and anxiety and pandemic-related emotional and mental trauma, right? And maybe also physical trauma, depending on what's been happening with their family and loved ones and friends. Um, and so we have to address that before we can even talk about learning, right? Like you're not going to take some kid who's really anxious or fearful they're not going to be a productive learner. Like we can't just dive into the curriculum and ignore them, right? So that's one transition that every school has to deal with. Um, there's also the transition, uh, which is going to be new for many schools, which is that depending on when the school calendar starts, is that unlike last spring, where we had time face-to-face -face with our kids before we went online, now all of a sudden we're trying to build relationships with new groups of learners and kids who might even be new to the school building, but we have to do it remotely. And so we don't have the luxury of building those relationships and those connections face-to-face -face before we had it online. Now we have to start the school year doing that, you know, virtually, which is a whole different ballgame. Here in the state, we also have social justice, racial injustice trauma that many kids are coming to school with, right? As we think about the summer of George Floyd and the protests around Black Lives Matter and so on. So that's another sort of set of traumas that kids are coming to us. Um, and so it just feels like the first few weeks needs to be focused really deeply on relationship building, on checking in with kids, on dealing with social emotional learning issues and trauma issues, um, laying the foundations for how we're going to use the tech tools in this class that we're going to use 
right? So that we can be successful. It feels like all of that is sort of the precursor before we can even start to talk about content and curriculum and assignments and that kind of stuff. And it feels like that's probably a good week or two. I don't know if you agree, but. No, that was actually what I was sort of sketching out already was you know, on social emotional learning priority, building as much community as possible and, um, the, and using our onboarding of our tech tools to, right. you know, for that time, you know, scavenger hunts, uh, getting, you know, running tech sprints, like things that I would do before hitting something like, a, let's say you're going to use garage band with elementary school students. Well, there's a lot of moving parts in there. There's a lot of procedural knowledge. And so I would run sprints beforehand just to get them introduced to the whole interface and how everything works. Um, so that when they went to use it during a literacy moment, these things weren't a double stress, you know, cognitive load could be more in more of a flow state or whatever. Um, yeah. And I would also probably enlist students as allies in that work, right? So this concept of distributed leadership that the teacher doesn't have to run and do everything herself, right? Like there are kids out there who I know how to use GarageBand, right? So don't come to me every time you have a GarageBand question, let's create those internal structures and systems where we have peer to peer support, not just teacher to student support. Definitely. And yeah, knowing that, knowing that distributed model, how that works and, and surveying, like knowing what knowledge is out there in your immediate classroom community to know what you can pull from. So for example, going back several years now, before I had ever even seen Minecraft, I was really interested in getting kids to teach us how to use that. And so kids came in every morning and just played Minecraft with us and showed us how all this stuff works. So we could learn like, okay, well, first of all, who are the knowledge brokers in this scenario? And uh, it worked, you know, like new leaders popped up and this became a whole new experience because those students were activated. The gamer geek, so to speak, uh, some of them, you know, learning difficulty kids. And uh, it was kind of a magical thing. Um, yeah, so I, you, you were kind of touching on the McSweeney article there about the um, uh, the position that we're seeking for. So you have to be a, a common knight. <laughs> this, this really gave me a good laugh last night reading through that because it was sort of like, what is going to be expected of all teachers this fall? Is like you have to be an expert in all of these things. And, you know, like yeah, we all, we all have to be Swiss Army knife educators, right? Um, doing 17 different things. Um, yeah, Chris, I think the other thing is that if we can lay that good foundation, right, then I think we have to design around some key principles. Um, and the key principles are how do we keep kids engaged at home, right? Like we can't just shove content to them and have them regurgitate it back to us. That's going to get old really quick. And we had a number of students that we lost in the spring after just a few weeks because they were like, you know what, this kind of learning, you know, stinks. I'm out. Um, and, it, and it's going to be even worse in the fall because now our families aren't going to give us grace. They're going to expect us to do something more than we did in the spring. And so if you as a school system are not ready to do sort of higher quality, higher engagement, deeper learning where kids have more agency, where they're being critical thinkers and problem solvers, where they're being more, uh, they're driving their own work more independently, right? Because they're at home and they have to. Um, we're not creating opportunities for kids to connect what they're doing uh, in ways that are meaningful and relevant to the world around them. Um, mm -hmm. If we're not finding opportunities to use technology in fun and interesting ways for communication and collaboration, right? Like our kids are going to be out um, and our families are going to start hollering at us. And so we had the summer to design for all that and get ready for all that. I don't know how many schools actually are ready. But... Yeah, no, to me, it goes back to just, some basic kind of ESL strategy that when I first came into teaching, it was like set up routines and rhythms of, of modes of products, of products of learning that the, stu the students can control so that you're not having to be um, constantly stressing them out with new routines every week or every two weeks, whatever your production cycle is. So I kind of fall back on, for me, the go-to for this is like the read and response letter that I did a few years ago. And this was part of like a balanced literacy program, kind of free Lucy Calkins TCE program. Uh, a lot of schools were using this balanced literacy program. And students would every week write a read and response letter. Whatever they were reading about, they they wrote this letter. And so the components that I, out of that, that I would try to bring into this online is that every week they had this product and every week it was the same. And they knew that they had to prepare certain things by certain time periods in the week. 
And they knew there was going to be this really high accountability for it, not through grading or feedback in that way, but that there was going to be this discussion that they had to have with me or with other students around this reading and response letter. And then it gave me this opportunity to divide, distribute my feedback so that I only, I only focused on five letters a day. I spent about an hour on these letters and I went as deep as possible in each one so that when I went to talk to that student, I had all of this asynchronous planning for this synchronous conference time. And so this is what I'm kind of thinking of setting up is like this kind of, I don't know if you know Mike Wesh, but he talks really well about this setting up these predictable load uh, production cycles so that students can insert and, and control that part. The content will change. The, you know, the learning objectives will change, but, but this product will always be the same. So that could be like explainer videos or it could be, mm -hmm. you know, a, a journal that students are writing, but something that the teacher can tap into during the week. And then when they have that synchronous one-on-one -on -one time or small group time, um, that, that is going to be a super meaningful time. I hope that that kind of makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. And, and we know that, you know, students thrive on routines and structures. I think, you know, it's always the balance of tight and loose. Like, how do we create enough structures for kids to be successful, but also not be so structured that they don't have any autonomy or agency within the structure, right? So we want to create routines, but then, you know, for example, this uh, for this cycle, instead of writing me a written essay, could you do a video? Could you do an audio? Could you do a whatever, right? Like to give kids some choices within the spaces, um, will really help, I think, maintain some student motivation and engagement. Yeah, and I think a lot of our learning systems are already set up. You know, if, you, if you're in a school that has project-based learning or if you're in a school that has the reading and writing, uh, the, the writing cycle, you know, those kind of things set up those, those rhythms. Right, but, um, people, but many schools don't have those things. All they have is teaching as transmission and then regurgitate it back in some kind of low-level assessment tool. Yeah, I had to revisit my former teaching self as I'm as I'm uh, preparing to move. Um, I found all of these old writings from students and how I was getting them to produce it. I was just like laughing at myself. I was like, oh, my God, this is I mean, it was student prompted writing. And so it was very authentic in that way. But there was very little iteration going on. There were illustrations used in, in sort of creative ways, but they were almost like post writing. So they were losing this like modality, the richness of the illustration to pull along the writing. Um, and so but what, what was there was this very rigid structure that was the same every week to two weeks the students had the same structure. So day one, we did this, day two, we did this, day three. So if I was absent from school, I do remember like substitutes would tell me, they were like, your kids just ran, they ran the program. Like they told me exactly what to do every you know 10 minutes or whatever. And so I was overkilling that and I was coming out of kind of success for all. I don't know if you remember this program from yeah, now, I'm really dating, now I'm really dating myself. Sure. But success for all was like, Every five minutes, every 10 minutes, you had to be on schedule. And someone would come in your room with a clipboard and literally mark you off if you were more than five minutes off of that schedule. But what it was really good about was setting up a system that in, in a week, all of these things are going to happen. In a 45-minute period, you can do all of these things. Right. And then the students became very much owners of that system. It was overkill on the rigidity um, and really lacking in kind of you know the, the ceiling. Like, like it, you couldn't go that far with it. But it was very effective at setting up, you know, systems for us to work around. Yeah, right. Um, let me jump to something else because uh, following your tweets in the current moment, and I, I do recommend that educators tune in to this, to your feed in particular this moment, just because you're not just covering a lot of education stuff, but you are politically uh, John Dewey. Yeah, I mean, John Dewey was, was the, the educator, the project-based learning um, advocate, but he was also incredibly, uh, you know, his agency for politics, he was very politically involved as well. And so I'm not sure how much you're involved in politics in your day-to-day -day life, but, you know, you are definitely throwing a lot of material out there. Um, is it important for us all to, well, how, how do I say this in a polite way? We are raised in a generation where to be apolitical is kind of acceptable. You know, in our family, we just don't talk about politics mm -hmm. just because, you know, there are Trump supporters, you know, two steps away. So it's something that you kind of walk on eggshells around. Is it important at this moment for us to crush the eggshells and, and get political? I think so. But I also have to recognize that I'm coming from a positionality of incredible privilege. Like not only am I uh, 
you know, uh, increasingly gray haired, uh, tall white male, um, you know, who's cisgender and has basically every sort of societal privilege, you know, appointed upon me unearned. Um, but I'm also a university professor, which means that my uh, faculty position is safe uh, because of our deeply held principles around academic freedom. So all of that gives me a really safe platform from which to operate. So recognizing that many other people are in more vulnerable positions, either because of some kind of personal characteristics, right, race, ethnicity, uh, sexual identity, whatever that makes them more vulnerable um, in society in terms of expressing their voice, uh, or because perhaps maybe they're a classroom teacher in a school district that really doesn't tolerate any kind of dissent whatsoever and is happy to fire you. Um, unfortunately, what we see, at least here in the States, is that public school teachers don't have very many free speech protections, so they have to be very careful about what they say publicly. Um, I think what I've been delighted about is that um, whether it's around advocating for their own safety and concerns as an educator, um, in terms of what learning and teaching in school should look like or around the pandemic, uh, but also around racial justice issues that a lot of educators have been willing to step up anyway because the issues are too important to remain silent. They're taking some risks when they do that. But, you know, there's the old quote, I think it's Edmund Burke, that, you know, the only thing necessary for evil to triumph is for good men to do nothing, right? And so I've been trying to just wrap my head around that in terms of my own social medias, figure out on which platforms and in which ways do I refuse to be silent. Um, and so, you know, for me, as somebody who leans left, um, not way left, but leans left, um, you know, before Trump's election here in the States, I was never that political on my social media. Uh, I just figured that, you know, okay, fine, somebody who has a different political stance is in office, and, you know, we have some policy differences, but, you know, they're at least a fundamentally human, decent you know, fun, fundamentally decent human being. Um, but what we have seen with this current administration, and this is from somebody who's coming at it from a history, as a history major, as a social studies teacher, and as an attorney, um, is that just the erosion of just basic governmental principles and fundamental aspects of American democracy have really been at risk with this one administration, which is why I've been more vocal. Um, mm. And so that's kind of my own mental reasoning behind that. And this is actually the first opportunity I've ever had to explain that. So thank you. Um, <laughs> but, but again, recognizing that I come from a, a very safe place to express my concerns around what's happening with government and democracy right now. And I anticipate that if the American election goes a different direction and, you know, we have a different administration starting in January, you will see a lot less political expression from me because it's kind of go back to where we were before this administration. And I can focus more on the things I really want to focus on, which is, you know, powerful learning and teaching and leadership. Given all the red for ed protest over the last two years, do you see that becoming a big issue between now and November? Do you think teachers will go on strike? Uh, I think we're hearing some teachers talking about going on strike just out of basic safety concerns, absolutely, where they can. Um, and so, yeah, I don't know. We'll see what kind of mobilization is. It's easier to mobilize when you're face-to-face, -face, right? Um, our, our young people are pretty good at creating some online movements, but the impacts don't seem to be the same when you don't have bodies in front of other bodies. Right? There's something about a wave of people in the streets or in front of the Capitol building um, or in front of the superintendent's office that just has a different impact than, you know, tweets and Facebook posts, right? Mm. Um, sorry, I'm trying to decide which question I want to hit sure. next. Um, yeah, I think what I would like to know is that I, you've been on a, a routine or a journey uh, over the last months and you've been interviewing and having discussions with educators all over the world. What are your predominant gleanings from that. You have some of my former colleagues on there. It's pretty exciting to see. Um, and what has been just kind of like the basic gist of what you've collected? Yeah. So, you know, back in March when things started hitting, um, I was trying to make sense of how I wanted to respond to the pandemic. And uh, I didn't see anybody talking to school leaders about how they were responding um, to, you know, the coronavirus crisis. So I created the Coronavirus Chronicles interview series, and I've now talked with 43 different 
uh, school leaders and organizations around the world. Uh, most of them here in the States, but, you know, maybe a fourth of them have been overseas. So we've been getting sort of that international perspective. It's been fascinating. I think I taught a class this summer called Leadership During a Crisis, um, where we not only talked about some of my interviews in education, but we also talked to leaders from other societal sectors. So, for example, we had somebody from the world of business come talk to us about crisis leadership. We had somebody from the fine arts come talk to us about crisis leadership. We had fire chiefs. We had the military. We had uh, somebody who ran the COVID floor at a local hospital, right? Like everybody's got their own lens on leadership during a crisis. So those conversations during my summer special topics class, along with these school leader interviews, have really been illuminating for me in terms of helping us recognize that so much of what we know about good leadership gets magnified during the crisis. And I think that's probably my main gleaning, right, is that if communication was important before the crisis, it's really, really important in a crisis, <laughs> right? Um, if leading with your organizational values and your personal values was important before the crisis, well, boy, that really gets tested during the crisis, right? And so, um, you know, I don't know if I gained any sort of like, you know, brilliant eureka moments from the conversation, but it just seems to reinforce some of the things that we really know about good systems and good leaders. Be an excellent communicator. Make sure your values are driving the work. Um, because the situation may be different, but your values should stay the same. Um, identify a few key focus areas that you're going to need for organizational success and relentlessly message around those over and over again and, and invest in supports around those and so on. It's kind of like these truisms of leadership that can play a, you know, not only during a crisis, but otherwise. Um, and I think the other thing that really sort of struck me was that schools that had laid a certain foundation beforehand were much better poised to react when the pandemic hit. So, you know, if you were a project-based learning or inquiry-based learning school beforehand, you were used to having kids direct their own learning, which paid tremendous benefits when kids were at home and had to direct their own learning, right? As opposed to another school, which was very teacher-directed and sort of fostered student dependence on the educator and they weren't used to driving their own learning, right? Uh, I was talking to a school in Milwaukee and they were, uh, they were all around um, competency-based um, progressions for kids in mastery learning um, of standards. And they said, you know what, we always just take kids wherever they are and move them forward. So, you know, that's the whole idea of competency-based. And so, you know, we're not worried about learning loss because there's no arbitrary timeline here. Um, <laughs> you learn something. It's just wherever you are at the moment, let's figure out how to move you forward on this next thing. And again, that idea that you laid a different kind of foundation beforehand that really paid off later. Um, you know, the districts that invested in, you know, digital equity so that every kid had devices and had bandwidth at home, like they're much better poised for later. So these are the kinds of proactive measures, these pre-foundations that really pay off, you know, when something bad happens. Yeah, I mean, that's what made me think to go back 10 years. Like, what if this had happened 10 years ago when in the, the school that I was most recently working at, we would have been, I think, very ready for a lot of this mm -hmm. just because we had really done a lot of onboarding with all of these right. digital tools and the kind of learning that, that you know we can access with those. Um, whereas when it did happen, they had taken a little step back on the ed tech Push. And so teachers were sort of not as ready. I did see some really incredible innovations. My, my partner yeah. does some uh, collaborative reading with a with an iPad where they connect through Zoom. So the tools are very basic. It's not going much further than Zoom, although the USB yeah. and do a live share of a whiteboard. And then the student and the teacher can both be highlighting and discussing what's going on in the text. Mm -hmm. uh, so very simple tweak, but uh, very effective. Uh, you know, it creates this kind of intimacy around the reading that you may not reach in the classroom, you know, if you're not, if you're not uh, using those tools, but now going back in the classroom, those tools will be more accessible. Um, so thinking through, uh, well, I've been following your work and I, I know that we're talking around a lot of the other publishings and work that you do. Uh, I guess my question for you is, are you a machine or do you have a team of graduate students <laughs> behind you, behind that room? You walk into another room and there's 20 graduate students 
slaving away. Um, how do you remain so productive and prolific? Um, yeah, that was my question. Yeah. Thank you. Um, well, again, I have, you know, the luxury of being a <laughs> professor. I have a lot of schedule and job autonomy. I mean, my job basically is to read and watch things, to think about them, and then write things, right? And so for me, the biggest challenge is where do I put my work? Um, the university, of course, would like me to put my work into peer-reviewed empirical research articles that get published in journals that nobody reads. I find, however, that most of my most fulfilling writing turns out to be on my blog uh, and, you know, if I write a book because I can write in a more authentic voice. Um, and so, you know, my productivity is, uh, challenges are always around how to balance those two. I have to do enough of the researchy university type writing to keep my university happy and, you know, get promoted and all that stuff. But then over here, this is where my love is. Like I could blog all day because writing is a creative act for me at its heart. Um, and so, you know, I'm like everybody else in the world, I'm engaged in sense making around the things that I care about. Um, and luckily I have this wonderful platform, Dangerously Irrelevant, where I can express myself in any way that I choose. And that can be videos and that can be self-created diagrams and charts that can be you know, long form blog posts or short form, short form, uh, throw a quick thought into the ether and see who responds, right? Like I just have this wonderful opportunity to express myself over here that I've built up over time. And so I lean that way most of the time. But again, because I have schedule flexibility, there's no machine or army of graduate students <laughs> behind the secret door. Um, and if they were, they would be working on the university side of the writing, which is where I try to spend as little time as possible, to be honest, um, because the work over here is much more fulfilling. You know, I tell people that I've been online and engaged with others since 2006. And for all the smart people that are in, you know, educational leadership, academia over here, I've learned you know, by factors of a thousand or more, much more from the smart people around the world that I interact with online on the other side of the equation, right? So I've, I've learned a boatload more from educators like you, Chris, uh, because there's plenty of smart people out there doing really interesting work, right, that aren't university professors publishing journal articles. And, and by being active online, I get to learn from people like you. Um, and that has driven my own evolution as a leader, as a thinker, as a writer, as an instructor, right, in ways that are much more productive and, and powerful than the traditional journal route. Let me throw a couple of questions at you there, and then and then we'll we'll move towards a closing. One is about the changes. You come out of the tech, a strong ed tech era. That at least that's where I discovered you. Where blogging was a huge thing. Educators were blogging all over the place. Twitter use was very co-creative. Like, you know, I know the Twitter chats are still going on, but I just felt like when I first was getting into it, there was a lot more rapid exchange. You could throw a question out, mm -hmm. and within five minutes, people were you know, responding. You can still do that to an extent, mm -hmm. but um, I, have you seen it changed? Are, is blogging still as powerful as it was? Is, is Twitter still as important as it was? Uh, blogging still powerful for me, right? But a lot of that is just simply the sense-making and meaning-making aspect of it. I get a lot fewer comments, for example, than I used to because we have other competing platforms that are vying for people's attention. Um, I think we see, uh, we saw a lot of great bloggers stop blogging because they decided that shorter form uh, platforms like a Twitter or an Instagram or a Facebook uh, was easier for them or required less effort as they got busy and so on. Like, you know, it takes some stamina to be a regular blogger. Um, and to stick with it, I just, you know, the psychic rewards for me and the connection rewards for me are still large enough to continue in that platform. But a lot of other people are using Twitter, for example, in, in, in a more robust way um, or Facebook or whatever their preferred platform is, you know, Pinterest, whatever. Um, so, you know, you know, we make choices based on what we value and what, what we're getting out of them. That's okay. Great. Scott, thank you so much for taking the hour to walk through a lot of these. Uh, this is a particular moment for educators, and I do believe you are staying very on top of what the current problems are, the, the asking the right questions that people need to go through. It's been very enlightening for me to kind of read these before going into the fall semester. 
Thank you, Chris. I'm trying. So, <laughs> uh, you know, the great part about having a blog is that if you know something lights your fire, you just sit down and start typing, and then you hit the publish button, and there it is for the world to react to, good or bad. <laughs> <laughs> great. Uh, well, thank you. I hope our paths cross again. Whenever we do have another hack at ISTE, uh, I'll, I'll look for you there. Um, and I know you also do some consulting with international schools. Uh, so I know those are uh, potential meetups as well. Absolutely. Um, great. Uh, stay online just for a moment. I'm going to end recording here uh, and then we'll say goodbye after.